Hey everybody, welcome to Losing Your Mind with Chris Cosentino. I'm your host, Chris Cosentino. We are here to talk about people that inspire and all my guests are inspiring in so many different ways. And I'm really looking forward to digging deep into how they got to where they are, to the top of their game, how hard they've worked, how much they've given up and how they're giving back. So without further ado, here's our next guest. Hey everybody, welcome to Losing Your Mind with Chris Cosentino. And our next guest is to David Fu. Welcome, David. You are based in Oakland, correct? That's right. What's up, everybody? So we've known each other for many, many years. And I think it's really exciting to be able to have this conversation because we both have gone through the rigmaroles of Top Chef in different forms. Uh, what season were you on again, David? Um, I forgot. <laughs> forgot. Come on, Juice. Don't give me that. Season 15. So about, I think, two years ago, going on the three. So you really shook it up. I mean, everybody in the Bay Area was going crazy. You know, everybody was super stoked you were there. Everybody was up in arms when you went home. But you really showed the cuisine that you grew up with and also who you really were and what you were really about, which was like, embracing the culture of the cuisine you grew up with and sharing that with the world. And I think that's really, really important. And I think we hear a lot now about, uh, about understanding where you're from, who you are and the cuisine that you grew up with. But also we hear a lot about people absconding with cuisine. What is the uh, cultural appropriation? And yeah. we can get into that conversation as well, because I think that's actually... Yeah, man, more than happy to. I think that's a really, really uh, touchy subject right now, as, as and I'm sure if anybody would agree, that's a little bit uh, uh, hot topic would be you. Um, <laughs> and, and we can go through that piece by piece. But what I'd like to do too is, is kind of let you speak a little bit about your upbringing and how you started getting into the kitchen and what really made you gravitate towards food. Absolutely, bro. Um, so I'm first generation Vietnamese American chef. Uh, my parents of, of our uh, Vietnamese diaspora, Vietnamese refugees, um, came over in 75. And I, I think if, uh, just to recall most folks who probably don't know, or if they do know, um, 75 was the fall of Saigon in Vietnam um, during the Vietnam War, the Vietnamese American War. So they landed here in Oakland. I grew up in West Oakland in a food insecure community and food insecure home. So I think unlike most of my chef colleagues, they they have these lavish and beautiful stories of like cooking with their grandmother and having amazing Thanksgiving and 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 holiday dinners and all that stuff. I had the opposite, you know. Um, when people think of food memories, you know, they would talk about these amazing meatloafs or turkeys that their parents would cook. You know, I have these memories of my mother bringing home chicken bones, you know, because she got them for free from the butcher. Because back in those days, in the 90s, you could get free chicken bones from the butcher. You didn't buy them. Um, and she would make a simple broth soup with them. We'd eat it with rice. And I'd say for the most part, in a week, that was our staple diet. That was our staple meal. And I think in addition to that, my father being a fishmonger for 30 plus years at Pier 45, he would bring home fish scraps. And I think for many years, all the way up into my adulthood, uh, opposed to embracing what I ate growing up, I, I had a lot of shame for that because that type of cuisine, at least on the surface level, 
I didn't see it being celebrated, you know, cooking with scraps, cooking nose to tail, cooking with things that were throwaway until I dove deeper into my professional career. And I saw chefs like yourself, you know, fucking Chris Cosentino nose to tail. You know what I mean? Like cooking with everything, you know, and, um, you know, learning more about the, uh, the black southerners cooking with things that were considered waste at those times, like pork ribs, chicken wings, hush puppies. Right. It wasn't until I started to dig deeper. And then I think I had this like really organic natural pivot to kind of like um, learn more about my roots and, and the way we ate. I, I think in addition to learning more about um, Jewish diaspora, you know, I wanted to learn more about Vietnamese diaspora. Um, and at the same time, I was learning about African diaspora as well too. So like, I wanted to kind of learn what, what kind of constructed my palate and the things that my mom cooked not just as a Vietnamese mom, but like as, as an immigrant, right? So, and I think that took me down this path. And like, I was getting confronted with all these like weird complicated terms, like authentic and traditional and shit like that. And I think, you know, I, I think that's where I really started to dig into like identity and 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 what my mom cooked and and I, you know, just for the record my mom she doesn't cook traditional vietnamese food because you know it's it's kind of impossible when you are away from your homeland and it's impossible to cook authentically quote unquote or traditionally quote unquote um because you'd be neglecting of all your other experiences as a immigrant woman you know and i i, I think that's true for every immigrant person right it's like if you're in a refugee camp for 10 years in another country it's it's kind of impossible to not find not have those influences affect the way you cook so and i, and I say price it's probably same for you too chef like all of your different experiences i know your root base is a sort of like tradition and 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 what you were rooted in your childhood in terms of like taste and palate from from the way you grew up but there's other things that you fold into it right so yeah, I think that's, I think it's a really, really important point that you're making right there, because when we talk about food, you hear how many times have you heard Cal Etal, Cal French, right? Right. Yeah. right? Or Cal Med. But I think, you know, we're very fortunate to live in California in that we have access to a lot of ingredients that we wouldn't have access to in other parts of the country, right? Especially with a lot of Mediterranean vegetables, but also a lot of Asian vegetables uh, that you could tradition the of, of the traditional flavor profiles that you can get. And one of the things that I found on my first time ever to Vietnam was walking through the markets. You know, the eye-opening experience of that and the herbs that were there, and and I would really like what's this herb? And they were like, sour herb. Okay, what's this herb? Bitter herb. Okay, what's that herb? Sour herb. Well, that one's sour herb. No, that's another sour herb. And I think that was their, their, their like, okay, here's this white kid who wants to understand, but th they knew I wouldn't understand the language. One, there's a language barrier. But two, it's, they're giving me the flavor profile of what the herb was. And I still to this day can't find, because I took pictures of them all, yeah. I still can't find some of those herbs here. Yeah. You know, like when we started to see Rao Ram, everybody knows cilantro. We found Rao Ram. Uh, you have shiso, you have all these different herbs here, but there's things that are there that we can't get here. And you're right. Even like the shallots and the cilantro, the way they grow there in that soil, 
it's completely different the way just like wasabi wasabi grown here in california or in half moon bay it's completely different animal even though it's it could be the same genius uh gen or, or, or same genetic strand or whatever it's called variety that you import straight from japan the fact that it's different soil climate here it's a completely different beast you know yeah. so like that that flavor profile you're looking for is it's not it's similar but not quite right and so I think, you know, to your point of what you said earlier, I think it's a really, really important thing, you know, so basically, we're in a region, you're in a region right now of Vietnam called Oakland. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right. So you're influenced by the communities that are around you and the people that are there. Like you said before, there's all these cultural differences that happen when you travel when you have moved to different place the ingredients that you can get your hands on perfect example is the italian american cuisine that has is prolific in the u.s is an adaptation of traditional italian cuisine based off the ingredients that were available in the united states at the time and modifications to make them as close to possible and i i think it's important for people to know this and i think i got some of this from you too is that when you're looking at a recipe, you're looking at time and place. A recipe is basically a story about time and place. So what we consider traditional, authentic, there was a time where it wasn't traditional, where it wasn't authentic, you know? And I think that's the thing. It's so American for us to, because we're all immigrants here, right? For us to yearn for what we have back home, you know, this this sort of nostalgic feeling, this this missing, this memory of, of, of what we had in, in our homelands, because now we're immigrated here and sort of semi-assimilated to this culture here. And I feel that when you go, when you step outside the borders of the United States, especially when you travel, when people innovate street food, whether it's in Thailand or Hong Kong or South America or, or Europe, it, it's, it's, it's not traditional authentic anymore. They don't care. They don't give a fuck. It's all it is. It's, it's good. Right. You know, like, I feel like that's true for, for, for most of the place, places I visit outside the United States. However, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not the migrationology, you know, social media YouTuber guy where he goes everywhere in the world, you know, so that's limited to my experience. But I, I feel like, I think at the end of the day, just to read a recipes of time and place, but to add to that, I think it's really important for us to understand is that the older the recipe is, the, the more commonalities and similarities we see from how close how close knit we are as a as a human race human population I think an example of that would be people when I say lemongrass people automatically think Vietnamese but they forget um, and they kind of disregard the fact that lemongrass it's you know it's 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 DNA is rooted in um, South Asia and Africa you know and in West uh, and in East Africa they use tons of lemongrass. You know, we, we completely disregard that. It's the same thing with rice, you know? Like if you if you trace where rice is from and how it's grown, you know, almost every country, almost every continent, uh, people eat rice. Same thing with wheat, right? It's just, it's made in a different forms. Like dumpling, you can find some shape or form of a dumpling almost in, in most countries, if not all, right? Same thing with stews, um, where it's, it's, it's centered around a fish or a, a meat or a vegetable as a protein, like it's, it's so universal. And if we trace those origins back, you know, it, it goes back to motherland Africa, you know what I mean? Or motherland, yeah, Middle East, kind of one of the two. 
and it really reflects on time and place and the sort of um, uh, human migration uh, in the course of history. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think uh, for, for me, be a little bit more specific. Um, what's what's a modern day recipe that you kind of uh, trace in terms of like migration or even trade? I think uh, Japanese curry. Like people think that's a traditional Japanese thing. It's not. <laughs> it was brought over by the British through the British Indian trade. And that's only happened in like the past hundred years. And you can really trace back uh, and pinpoint the time that it got into Japan through trade, stuff like that, right? So. Um, and, and that's actually a really great point. There's a great book that was written by Raymond Sokoloff. It's called Why We Eat What We Eat. Mm -hmm. And it's the history of tomato, chocolate, rice, pasta, and how it navigated black pepper, how it navigated the globe to get to where it is today. Yeah. And, and there's so many things. And you, know, you mentioned lemongrass. Yeah. If you think about uh, such a simple thing as ginger and galangal, yeah. if you look in Florence, and you start to look at the spice trade, ginger and galangal were part of the Italian uh, spice options because of the spice trade. So you can find old dishes with ginger and galangal in them in Italy, which I think is a really interesting part. Awesome. You know, so same thing there's tapioca, other things. right? In Asia, tapioca is from Brazil, you know, we in, in tapio is found all over Asia, not just in boba form, but like um, as, as a dough, as a noodle, as a uh, wonton, uh, as a dumpling wrapper, if you will, right? So yeah. same thing, yeah. It's, it's such an amazing thing. Like, you know, there's that heated debate about fish sauce, right? Who made fish sauce first, right? Was it the Asians or was it the Etruscans, the pre-Romans, right? For garum. Yep. Or was there a sharing of information via a trade circuit like nobody really knows yeah and i think that's the thing it's like i think at the end of the day it's not about who made it first it's just i i i think it's i think we should be more focused on the celebration of innovation with, with the resources that people had i you know like i think that's all that really matters because without that we wouldn't be eating well today um, but I have to say, I think it was the Etruscans who who made garum first. And I think if you define fish sauce as fermented anchovies in, in that sort of shape or form, they made it first. But I think um, in Asia, um, Vietnam was accredited to like the filtered, um, the filter siphoned pure liquid fish sauce. You mean the clean Asia. stuff without all the chunkies in it? Yes, without all the chunkies in it. I think Vietnam was the first to make that. I prefer that I've made garum. <laughs> I've made squid garum that's black with ink. I mean, we've Ooh. done it in the past. I mean, I think you had that at the restaurant. We did it at Encanto. Yeah, it was delicious. But it was fuerte, right? Remember how strong that was? <laughs> it's like we opened the container and everybody's head turned, right? I think there's so many cool crossovers culturally. Um, and I think there's a lot of conversation piece. I mean, when you start to think of you know, cultural influence across the world and how unfortunately conquering some countries has that have conquered then left, have left their food uh, history or pieces of their food culture within that place that was once said conquered and then had they had been ousted. And it's changed the way and the direction of that culture's food. 
Absolutely. And I think that's a really, really powerful uh, thing to discuss. And I think a lot of people have kind of forgot, like for instance, I mean, you and I both have a love of Bon Me, which is beyond, right? Right. <laughs> but think like, what is the one most important medium of that sandwich? Is the bread, right? Yeah, the bread. Yeah, and, and the pate, and the pate, and the pate. But <laughs> those both came from. But they both came from where? They both came from France, you know. And I think that's a really like that. So. When you hear these folks talk about cultural appropriation, is that cultural appropriation or is that we really yeah, like? Yeah. What we did? Let's 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 dig into that. I'm ready to go. I got my. You know, you know on. that that's a pretty hot topic <laughs> right now. And and I don't. And I'm not a. You know me, right? Like I love food of the world. I'll eat anything. I'll try anything. I love learning from different cultures. I love learning techniques. I love learning flavor profiles. And I try to stay true to the place of origin Absolutely. of those things. So Absolutely. for instance, and I'll use for example, I love learning Japanese cutting techniques when it comes to fish, but I would use it as a crudo, not as a sashimi or a nigiri. Absolutely. So to me, that's advancing a skill set, looking at another culture who has elevated a, a technique or a process above and beyond what I'm accustomed to. And let me just say this to start off the, our cultural appropriation talk. I love it and appreciate it when people from outside my own culture cook the food that that I've known and cherished and loved all my life. You know, specifically Vietnamese food. There's nothing wrong with that. That's not a that's not cultural appropriation. For me, cultural appropriation is when um, people consciously benefit um, off of another culture's food let's just say food in this in this regard without putting respect to it so for example um let's say i'm a, 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 an entrepreneur right and i'm not in the food space right and i go into north beach san francisco and i want to make money off of italian food and i have i've never done any research for it right and what i do is you know i call my place napoli cuisine right um, and I, what I do is I go to Whole Foods and buy focaccia, <laughs> put pizza sauce and cheese and tomato on it. And then I call it Napoli style. Cause that my friend is not just bullshit. That's cultural appropriation. And that's what happens. I think in the Asian food space a lot where they're using, for example, they'll, 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 it's one thing to misrepresent it, but to benefit off it financially, that's appropriating. So like they'll, they'll take egg noodles, right? And then they'll, they'll put duck in there and they'll call it pho. And it's not pho. Pho always has to be based with rice noodles. And it either could be made with chicken or beef. The moment you put any other protein in it, it's not pho anymore. It, it qualifies into something else. So I, I think I want to be very clear what cultural appropriation is. It's, not, it's, it's a misrepresentation and it's an exploitation of that misrepresentation because they're trying to take this very simple idea of what they think they understand something and then make money off of it. It's the same way of, um, so, so if, I, if I had my, my chef buddy who I worked with and I made pho for him and he is not of Vietnamese origins and he's selling pho on his menu, I think that's, I think that's absolutely okay as long as he, as he follows 
what the true definition and represent pho for what it truly is. Like, like Josh Weissman on YouTube, he did his own iteration of pho. And I thought it was beautiful, but he stayed, he stayed to, he accurately represented what pho was. And I celebrate him for that. You know, I, I think that's the thing. Chefs, people in the food space, they're, they, they should hold themselves accountable and responsible on how they represent other people, uh, how they represent other people's cultures and cuisines. And when you misrepresent, I think, um, I don't think there's any um, governing, governing bodies that will like give you a fine or, 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 uh, or, or, or uh, slap you on the hand. If anything, however, with this younger generation, they're really well informed about, um, culture and the accurate representation of things when you do that and you misrepresent you really risk um going into this space of cancel culture and it could be fairly detrimental Oof. and it happens to all companies it happens to nike it happens i mean it's a mixture of trolls and it's a mixture of people who 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 really want um accurate represent, representation for their culture but i don't think you know I, for me once again, just to reiterate, and I'm sorry I'm being long with it. No, it's, it's, and I think, I think you're making a really, and, I, and I'm going to use some two key words here. You Please. want, you want to give appropriate historical credit. Yes. And you want to have factual background on a dish. It's okay with you if those two pieces are followed, yep. but as soon as you start heading off that's like me that would be for instance if i went and bought wonton wrappers and made ravioli at the restaurant and called it ravioli but it's okay to be like it's one thing to egg people on be like this is traditional and you know then, yeah, there's the line component and yeah, but it's okay if you did that you're like you know i'm you, you chef you could be like you know, we're here in San Francisco. I've been heavily, I love Chinatown and this is my homage to Chinatown. Like, you know, I think that's totally okay, but don't fake the funk, you know, don't be like, I've been to Vietnam and this is the way we do it. And there's a lot of people on social media who are doing that right now, where they claim their few visits to Vietnam. They, 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 they're saying this is the accurate representation of what pho is. That's one thing, right? And there's another complex to it. I think identity is an extremely sensitive thing, right? And believe it or not, Chris, people have called me out for being inauthentic or non-traditional or not Vietnamese because I don't, I don't look like your stereotypical Vietnamese person. I'm not. I'm, I'm six foot two. I'm two twenty five. <laughs> I have tons of tattoos. You know, like I, I don't look at like your typical in person. I don't like your typical Vietnamese person. These are other Asian Americans attempting to call me out, and. In addition to those complexities, my identity, my family, we are free, multi-generational freedivers. We're from an island, you know? So the food that I put out there, some people in Vietnam, both in Vietnam and here of Vietnamese origin, they've never seen that food before. So they claim that I'm doing fusion. And then that's the other thing. It's like identity could be a very complex thing, you know? So I think it's, it's a double-edged sword and there's a fine balance between the two of a person who's not from that identity trying to create a narrative around there and there are people within the space who have very niche very specific identities that that don't match the uh the sort of mainstream story of what of what um 
of what that identity is. Like it's similar to Italy, like, you know, a person from Sicily or Napoli or Tuscany, like, their dialects are different. You know, they eat completely different. Like it's not one identity. Yeah, and I mean, I, you have one pasta shape could have three, three, four, five different names. The right? same sauce yeah. is made differently between family to family to family. And, you know, let's be honest, everybody says that their grandma makes it best. And I'm sure <laughs> it's the same way in Vietnam. Absolutely the same. Like, you know, when people think that, um, that when I talk about my family recipes or whatnot, we ate, we ate, my parents were pescatarians up until they immigrated here. So the conversation around beef or anything that's beef related didn't come from Vietnam. It's, it's experiences that we had here in the United States. You know, so that's that's a completely different beast for us. And and was that was that based on what was available where you your family your your parents lived, right? Because they were you said an island, and I'm sure beef wasn't readily available. You're right, beef wasn't available, and um, you know, for fish, fish was accessible, so we just go out and fish it. But they didn't have beef. That was a like luxurious thing. And when they came here to the United States, especially in the 70s and 80s, um, especially with subsidized ranching, right? Um, beef was a very cheap thing to get at any supermarket. You know, you get like, at those times you get like, you know, any cut of beef for like a buck or two a pound, 99 cents a pound. Same thing with chicken, same thing with pork, right? Um, so that's the thing. And then it was the a complete opposite for them. Like seafood then for them became inaccessible because seafood in those decades and now included were extremely expensive. So they had to do this full pivot. And the only way we could get seafood was the scraps that my father brought home as a fishmonger, you know? That's incredible. So with those, with that growing up and, and, and that massive change for your family from having to be, you know, a fish-based diet to then, holy shit, fish is through the ceiling. You know, your dad's bringing home like belly flaps and tails, I'm sure, right? Collar. Scallop, scallop frill, which is the most underrated shit. Oh, that's the ever. best. That's the best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I mean, those are like, those are things that like, I love, you know, fishtails, scallop frill, you know, you have all these bits like collars, heads, you make a beautiful, you know, people have forgotten that those are regular cuts that's right. everywhere else in the world, but here. Yep. That's right. right? And we have been a very, you know, the U.S. has very much so been a country of waste. You know, if it's got a head on it, people don't want to look at it. And, you know, collars, like fish collars, luscious and delicious. Fish head stew is by far one of my favorites, right? Like gelatinous and the cheeks and you have all this deliciousness in there. It's like, I, I think that it's like at that on your palate, right? That like gelatinous, oh, how much of that comes from a fish head, like, and but it's craveable, right? And you know, when you're adding this very delicate broth and it's done in, you know, so well, there's, it's magic. And I think yeah. some of the best cooking comes out of necessity, That's right. right? That's right. And that was one of the things that I think Cucina Povera, which is the Italian cuisine of the poor, very much so was based off that. And I think every culture has that version. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. If, I, if I could just reference, you know, um, tarantulas are commonly consumed in Southeast Asia, in particular Cambodia. 
Um, and it's like the hottest street food craze, like deep, they deep fried tarantulas. You know why? In the 80s, the Khmer Rouge, which was a, a Nazi-like regime that, that, that killed everyone. It was like a genocide sort of situation. Um, they, when they, when, when they, um, um, when that was happening in the eighties, they completely destroyed the Cambodian infrastructure and agriculture and ranching. So there was no meat, there was no food. So people had to like, and there was an abundance of tarantulas everywhere. So in the eighties, they pivoted over to eating tarantulas as street food, because that's all they had. And that's not a traditional thing. And it's this supposedly like, it's this amazing, like, thing you got to do when you when when you go to Cambodia is eat fried tarantula you know is that crazy <laughs> you know what I mean I've eaten a lot of things I've yeah. not had that one and <laughs> have you had it yet no um my my friend's parents had cooked it up but I couldn't muster up the confidence to try it but I'm, I'm still working on it so well, you, <laughs> start, you, you start with one of the little legs right you just a little bit first they said it's like crab I mean, it makes sense. They're they're very similar species. Like spiders are basically crabs of the land, right? Wow. I yeah. see. But th that's an interesting dynamic. So, you know, due to war and, you know, devastation becomes a food system change, right? Yeah. And, and it's really interesting to think that you would shift. I mean, it makes sense, right? So you have the devastation of the land and then tarantulas become your protein form. Very because it just happens to be high protein, right? I would have never, I didn't know that. That's see, you know, this is what's great about this is you're always constantly learning about foods all over. So have you been back to Vietnam? Pre-pandemic, yes. Um, I think from 2015 to 2019, I was going back every year and it's been nice. You know, I just haven't traveled everywhere. I've been mostly in the South or they call it the Southwest region, Ming Thai, which means Southwest. So that's everything from like Saigon and downward, um, coastal cities mainly. And when you travel there, uh, do you do you speak the language? Yes, I think I speak it at a eighth grade level. <laughs> so how? So what is that like when you go there? You can get by, but then they look at you I like can, I can order food. I can speak to my elders. I can you know make friends. But the moment we get into politics, <laughs> you're, you're like, it's over your head. You're like, it's over my head. I can't get romantic. You can <laughs> you know. Coffee. You can order a bowl of noodles. <laughs> you can, you can get, you can get from point A to point B in a car, you know, but. I, I can, I can tell people how I feel, but, but once again, it's like, uh, cause, cause Vietnamese is like the, like, like the French language It's a very romanticized language. And when you say something, you kind you get very wordy about it for people to understand, you know, it's like opposed to talking straight up, you're, you talk around it to kind of tell what the situation is. Um, but yeah. It's <laughs> so with, with that traveling back to Vietnam and then coming back to Oakland, have you, seen a change in your food in the way that you cook because of going back and tasting things and it and it's sparking something that you want to do and then being influenced by something that you find in Oakland and kind of just like tying it back in together to present something anew or do you try to have that experience and then try to emulate that experience as best as you can for for the folks that you want to share that experience with I think uh, just to be fairly um, honest and transparent, like the pantry that my mother had growing up, 
we didn't always have the best Vietnamese ingredients, mainly because those resources weren't available. There wasn't like a high-end red boat or a high-end sunfish sauce in our pantry because it just wasn't around. And it wasn't, it wasn't until recently where we get those high quality products. So the stuff that we use was squid fish sauce or three crab fish sauce, which is, you know, just to be very honest, I'm putting this out there. Those are inferior brands um, that are owned by um, Asian food conglomerates. Um, and I would compare it to, um, it's just a low quality product. The bottle itself costs more than the product. Um, you know, it's kind of bad. That's, that's, that's and that, you know, that, that happens culturally everywhere, right? Let's be honest. It's everywhere. not just that. So for instance, we have a lot of fake olive oils out there. We have fake exactly. maple syrup, which is not really maple syrup. So exactly. it happens everywhere. But I think this is, you know, specifically to the cuisine that you're cooking, which is traditional or, you know, with all the flavor profiles that you're looking at to get from Vietnam, you can't achieve those without having a higher quality product. Because that was the one thing that I noticed that was above and beyond for us when we went, Mm -hmm. you know, Tatiana and I were there and it was constantly, the flavors were so bold the chilies were vibrant but not so hot yeah. uh, the balance the use of palm sugar the peppercorns were super super <laughs> tropical and yeah. vibrant they weren't just about the punch i mean the difference between fresh you know fresh dried peppercorns and ones that have been sitting in your pantry for <laughs> god knows how long like, like dust holy yeah. cow like mm-hmm. you would have a dish and the peppercorns were in there and then having the green fresh peppercorns right like for sure. So different. And then to try to emulate that flavor profile here, sure. I totally was like, oh man, I want to have that again. I can't do that. There's no way I can do that. Absolutely. And I, I, I just found that in traveling back, um, especially in my youth, my adolescence with my parents, we would bring a bunch of ingredients back. And the stuff that they cooked with, those ingredients that they brought back, it was always very simple cuisine. It was very... Um, um, I think what's the word for it? It's it, it, it were it was dishes that was very, um, what's the opposite of a uh, acidic? Um, bright, did you mean it's like bright flavor? Not bright, not bright, um, alkaline. Oh, okay, you know, so I felt like the, a lot of the foods that my parents cooked was very alkaline, it wasn't heavily seasoned. Um, and if it, 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 and if there were ingredients from Vietnam in there, there was just like a few drops of fish sauce, a few, you know, a few cracks of like the peppercorns that we would bring back and like, it would just open everything up. And that's, that's the type of food that I ate growing up, mainly because my parents had a heavy preference and bias, uh, bias for seafood. Um, and in cooking those sort of ways, like, um, especially like the fish porridge that my parents would make or my mom would make you would get like this natural sweetness from fish. And growing up, I associated fish and seafood to be sweet. When my friends, you know, the kids grow up to, every time they think, or they would talk about fish, they're like, ew, it's fishy, blah, blah, blah. I never, I never got that connection. I never understood why people, still this, I still don't understand why people think seafood has a fishy taste to it if you get it incredibly fresh and you cook it the right way it sweet. should be sweet it's bright it's fresh you know um 
So like, it's, it's very interesting. Like, you know, when I went to, and that's the sort of palette that I was kind of kind of constructed around in terms of what my mom kind of taught me to cook with and my dad as well, and what I tasted. So when I went to culinary school, there's these, these polar opposites, not that it was right or wrong. You know, it's like, you cook very alkaline, you know, we use lots of bitter, you know, um, spice can come in many different forms, not just black pepper, you know, stuff like that. Um, and not to say it's good or bad, it's just a completely different spectrum. So going to culinary school and working in French and Italian places, it really opened my eyes on what more food can be. And then in addition to that, to loop it back around to like Vietnamese ingredients, whatnot, um, it really helped me, I think, get a brand new, fresh perspective on, on how to cook. You know, but I'm still learning. I'm always a student. I'm, I'm never a master. <laughs> well, I mean, and then I think that's what's the best part about this industry and, and being in, in culinary and hospitality. We're forever learning how to build and layer flavors and have things like palate explosions is like what I like to say, like really just getting it to circle the whole palate, getting all those flavor profiles. And uh, my first boss used to say, you know, make the food round so it completes your palate in every bite. Mm. And that was a really, really powerful message mm. as a young cook that you want the flavors to be round. You want salty, salty, bitter, sour, sweet, pungent, umami. You want all those things to hit off and that's round. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that those are not easy to attain and yeah. simplicity, it's a lot easier to attain than keep on adding shit in to cover up your mistakes. I love that because that, that, that means we're saying um, that we put flavors together to complement and not, 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 not conflict with each other. And that's a really hard thing to do. Like you really have to know your study of food in your pantry of like, if you're adding this in, it's going, it's only going to be complementary to it. And it's not going to make it saltier or sweeter or whatever it is. Right. So. Well, I think that's really, you know, when you talk about utilizing ingredients and I think, you know, the, the go-to in this country is salt, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's the go-to. Now, there's many different ways to get salt into a dish, Yeah. right? So you can use salted anchovies. You can save the salt from your salted anchovies. Yeah. You can use fish sauce. There's a million different ways to hit Absolutely. that. Horseradish makes things taste salty, right? Gives that celery, yeah. You know, celery. There's all this, you know, it, it's it's such an interesting thought process because when you look to other cultures, like for instance, salt was highly taxed. It was very few and far between. So they had to find other ways to give that depth without physically adding salt itself. And I think that's what's really interesting when we start to look at food in a broader spectrum and learn to embrace, you know, I, I always like to say acid and herbs before salt. And I think that that really, really goes a long way. Absolutely. That's, I, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but that's why I've always gravitated towards, you know, Southeast Asian, Vietnam for the brightness, you know, herbs. I mean, there's nothing like sitting down and getting a pile of herbs. Yeah. Right. And just start, okay, what does it taste like with this one? What does it taste like with that one? Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think, I think those, those sort of, um, that's sort of like a flavor palette realm. I think it's, it's, it's rooted in us in, um, as an infant or as a, um, as a baby in our mother's wombs. You know what I mean? It's, I think it's those classic flavor profiles, like sour, I think brightness, 
I think earthiness as well. I think those are the two first flavor profiles that we get from a mother through, through placenta, you know? And I think there's something there where um, I, I feel like, I, I think it's universal for, I think any child or any person when they taste sour, it's, it's, it hits some sort of nostalgia for them, right? Uh, I don't think there's any cuisine in the world that doesn't use earthy or, 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 or some sort of acid, right? I don't, I'm pretty sure all cuisines, all cultures in the world, right? You have to. I mean, whether it's white vinegar, citrus, yeah. you know, even you think about it, wine. Milk, milk yogurt, right? Yogurt. Yeah. It's endless when you yeah. start to think about it. Yeah, yeah. So I want to talk about your experience on Top Chef because a lot of people always ask, you know, I'm sure you've been <laughs> But, you know, there's a camaraderie that happens on that show that people don't realize how long lasting that is, right? Yeah, absolutely. And what they see is the moments of duress, they <laughs> see the moments of intensity yeah. that are um, not glorified, but I think exemplified by the fact that you have a short timeline, they've thrown you a couple curveballs, and let's be frank, shit isn't going always the way it's supposed to, but that's the restaurant industry. That's hospitality, that's always cooking, right? So it, I would love it if you would give, you know, a little bit about what that was, that experience was like for you. Um, did you have fun? You know, did you, you know, I know you're still in contact with all that crew, you know, and it's, and it's such a, a really, I think a, a long lasting and important part of, of what people, you know, see, but also it's going to be a long lasting part of you. Absolutely. I, I think it's not just, um, it's not just my immediate staff, but the whole network of other Top Chef alumnus has been extremely warm and welcoming. And once I got checked into that, I got checked into this bigger, larger, big, um, huge family, if you will. I think, um, let me say this first, Top Chef changed my life. You know, I was, well, Top Chef for me, it was a world stage. I think at the time I was doing pop-ups and there was an opportunity and there was an interest for me to go on this world stage and kind of tell my story and that I would be forever humble, you know? So just understanding that fact, going on to this show where they gave me opportunity to cook, have fun. We traveled um, and uh, they put me, uh, they put us up in nice homes. They gave us a, a refrigerator fully sponsored and Whole Foods. Like, you know, I'm a kid from West Oakland, you know, grew up in a food insecure home. Like I, I never thought those opportunities would be possible for me. So for me, all across the board, the opportunity was a blessing and I had a blast and I do it again in a heartbeat. And I think for some people on the show, they, they, they were too caught up in their own heads. And this is across all seasons. And I just want to address the mental health in this, where they, they, they took the competition too literal in a sense where they pressured themselves to be the best. I was just there to show excellence, you know, just like any other great kitchen that you were working. Um, it's, it's not about who's the best cook. It's not about who's the best sous chef or chef or whatever. At the end of the day, you have a sense of camaraderie to work with your fellow teammates to execute a great service. And that was the mentality that I had going into the, going into Top Chef, regardless if I won or lost. I, I gave, I really gave a shit if I won or lost, you know, and I, I had this sort of like Rocky Apollo mentality, you know, where it's like, if I'm going to go up against you, I want to fight you. I want to compete with you at your best. And whoever wins, 
may the best man or woman win that competition, may the best chef win the competition. Um, and there were, of course, just like any other sport, there's like frustration, you know, like you miss a shot, you're like, fuck, you know, kind of everything in between. But I had a blast. It was one of the best experience in my lifetime. I encourage my chef call uh, any other young chef, uh, veteran chef, whoever seems opportunity in it to kind of engage and, and, and participate in the show because it is a life-changing opportunity where you get to stand on in front of a world stage and kind of tell your story. Um, and I see, and since then, the power of narrative has really changed my career, my tra uh, trajectory of, of what I do in the food space. Um, FYI, you know, at this moment right now, I have a film that I co-executive produced um, that's airing nationally on PBS. It's called Bloodline. If you go to chef2.com, you'll be able to watch it. Um, it's free on YouTube. Please like it. Please support it. Please share it. It's about my family. Um, and in addition to that, I'm working on a few other scripts and I'm working on a book. So that's the thing. It's like, you know, it changed my life. And, you know, if you want to get onto Top Chef, it'll change yours as well, too. I mean, it's, and I think that's a really, really great message because I think the opportunity is there. And I think it's, you made the most of it. You did, you, and, and, you know, I knew you prior. I saw you on, I've known you after. I mean, we've known each other for years. Absolutely. Right. And, but what I think for me watching you, it was you. There was never a facade, there was never a fake moment. It was you being you. And that's what I loved. I was like, you know, Tatiana and I were watching it just going, shit, go, dude, go, come on. <laughs> you had, it wasn't an air of arrogance. It wasn't an air of confidence. It was just, you were you. It was an air of two. That was it. And you, you, you were who you are. And I don't, and I think you made a really good point that there are a lot of folks who go on there with the wrong thought process. But who am I to judge? I mean, you know, everybody has mm -hmm. a thing for me. I mean, you were you you destroyed master uh, the masters. Oh, uh, let's, let's talk about you real quick. I just want to. No, 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 no. This, this isn't about, about me. This is not about me. This is about you. This is about you. No, done, done. But I have to say, I just want to say this because I'm always a big fan. I'm always a big fan. You're you're like a leader in this industry, and I, I look up to you. Um, I just want to say this, like you know, I, I think that's one of the reasons why you did so well because you went in there and you came in there as an, you weren't trying to be the best of anything. You you were just, you surrounded and you had this thought process about excellence in every aspect. Excellent person, excellent friend, excellent chef, kind of excellent human being. You know, there's help that needs to be helped. You would help out. That's sort of the same thought that I had too. It's like, fuck everything else. Just just be a solid person. <laughs> just just be happy, have fun, do your thing and everything else will come. And I had a lot, I had a bunch of chef buddies who worked for you as well too. And the reasons why I love them so much is because they preach the sort of same message that you kind of put out there, not with them, but to the universe. It's like, just be excellent. Let everything else be. It's in you know, the world. And it's not about being number one. The world's just about being, it's about contributing, right? Um, and, and you know, I know Top Chef is a show and all that, but fuck it. <laughs> Just be on there, have a good time, cook. That's what we do. I think, you know? I think there's something to be said for remembering why we started doing this. Yes. And I think it's really hard. Let's be honest. It's really hard right now to think about that, right? You know, we have the world's still upside down. We have a pandemic. We've had massive restaurant closures. We have staff shortages. 
I mean, there's there's definitely, you know, we have climate change and we're seeing the difference in the cost of goods. We're seeing the difference in soil and in the ocean. So it really gives you that sense of anxiety, but we have to remember that we got into this because we make people smile. Yes. Amen. A fucking men, brother. We got it's into about, and it's not about the accolades. Yeah. No. And, and I think, look, accolades are, everybody wants them. Everybody likes to win. Everybody likes to be recognized. And, you know, I'm just as guilty for, for having those desires and wants, right? Like nobody, nobody doesn't want to be recognized for what they do. But I think the, the most important part is like, are your guests returning? Are they coming? Are they leaving with a smile? Are they coming in without a smile? Then leaving with a smile it means you change their day. Taste memories are powerful. And that's what we're giving. We're giving taste memories. Hopefully they're always the good ones, right? Like everybody has bad taste memories, but our, our moment is to make people smile. And as a young man, I felt fortunate to watch Julia Childs and watch Jacques Pepin and they inspired me to want to cook. And to this day, that's what I do. Yes, I may go ride my bike a lot, and, but I still cook. I still love cooking. I love seeing people smile and that creative moment of when the flavors come together in your head and you think, is this going to work? And then you put it on the plate and you're like, it's a little off, but how can, like, that's what makes it fun. It's, and like you said earlier, we're forever learning. We're never masters of our craft. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And the moment you say you're a master of the craft is the moment you need to quit because you're truly not a master, <laughs> right? I mean, that's arrogance because there's forever somebody better or has done it before you or is going to do it quicker than you and, or learn a new technique. Like to me, it's, it's I mean, I'm surrounded by books in this room because I'm always trying to learn and better understand why things work the way they do, why flavors work. And I think that's why I'm always trying to, have these conversations with people like yourself too, because I'm learning every time. Absolutely. And it's not about, you're, you're so right. It's not about quickness. If I've learned anything cooking with matriarchs, I've gotten my ass smoked <laughs> 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 by so many fucking Vietnamese moms. And, you know, like put me on my humble. Oh, oh, you worked Michelin. You can't do this fucking rice crepe. What? I thought you were a shit. Like I've got put into my place with fucking rice crepes um, with a, a South Asian mom from Chennai making fucking dosa. You know what I mean? Like It's amazing, isn't it? Because you know why? You know, I went to culinary school after high school, but they've been fucking doing this shit ever since they're five, six years old. With no, probably with no cutting board, cutting out of their hand. Oh, does, you know? that, does that freak you out? Did that, that freaked me out when I was there. First time. <laughs> cutting in their hand. So the first time I ever saw that was when I staged in Italy, in uh, Florence, at a place yeah, called yeah. La Pentola del Oro. Uh -huh, and uh -huh. the woman was cutting the carrots like this. She had <laughs> in her hand and she's pulling the knife. So what do I do? I'm like, they don't have cutting boards. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> so I do it and I my knife is sharp. Like I sharp yeah. everything before I went. I was like, I'm staging in Europe. Yeah, yeah. And what I do, I gouge myself like they didn't even have band-aids because they never cut themselves because they're so <laughs> of course i'm like yeah. wow look at me i'm the <laughs> who came to stage and now i look like the fool then we're in vietnam and i'm watching them cut vegetables yeah. and meat 
in their hand on the side of the road. Like, and I'm just like, I'm an idiot. Like, I know nothing. Right. See, it's not about, and that's the thing. It's, you can't replace experience, man. But at the same time, endure it. Endure your process, right? Enjoy the journey, right? It was so amazing seeing, like, getting a meal in a plastic bag, a bra, <laughs> right? Yeah, absolutely, man. And I'm like, it's convenient. And I'm looking, I, I saw this, okay, the best ever. We're staying, <laughs> we're staying in a hotel. I look out the window and yeah. we're in one hotel for three nights. Yeah, yeah. I look out the window and every day a motorcycle shows up, they set up shop yeah. and they're cooking outside and everybody's stopping. Yeah. So I look at Tatiana, I was like, I'm going out there tomorrow morning. Okay. <laughs> so I go out, I get a bunch and I come back in. I'm like, I've got food. And it's literally in a plastic <laughs> bag. And I'm like, you think we can get a bowl from the hotel? <laughs> I, eat it. I felt like an idiot, but it was incredibly delicious and fresh. I had the broth in a bag and I had all the herbs and the noodles in another. <laughs> I had the herbs in a smaller bag and then the noodles yeah. in another. Yeah. I was like, it was Bumbo Huey. I had Bumbo Huey. Yeah. BBH. BBH. <laughs> it was so good. But like seeing that and understanding like the process and watching them make it, everything right there, like I'd never seen anything like it. It's 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 all about perspective and it's all about different experiences. And yeah, man, like um I'm I'm glad I didn't come into the space arrogant. Um, even if I did, you know, cooking Vietnamese food, like those aunties, those matrix humbled me like <laughs> in a quick second, you know, um, it is humbling. I think that's actually a really, really great word to use because you going to culinary school, you're taught a certain way and you're taught, this is how it has to be. Yeah. It doesn't always have to be that way. And there's a reason why those people have succeeded in what they're doing for generations. And it's not just like, okay, I'm the mom who's mm -hmm. done it her mom did it and then her great grandma did it and it's passed down generationally and i think that to me is just spectacular absolutely yeah it's just unreal it is and like to be able to absorb a piece of that to add it to your own repertoire you know what i mean like i think uh just to kind of give our audience um an understanding of how 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 it benefits chefs like us so like cooking with a matriarch when she says sour you know, when we went to culinary school, we associate sour with what, like um, apple cider vinegar, lemon, lemon, right? But working with a matriarch when she says sour or it needs more sour, that could be in, it could be uh, macroot, uh lime leaf, or it could be uh, tamarind, tamarind, right? Or it could be lime, or it, it could be, it could come from a ferment, you know, of some sort, you know what I mean? Like a, like a pickled vegetable or something like that. Um, kind of everything else in between. It could be like fermented tofu, you know? So that stuff's too much for me. I can't it do it. <laughs> for 14 days, it's too strong. It's that it's that burning sensation I get on my palate. You know, it's like almost, uh, uh, what's the word? I'll say, I'll, I'll say it openly. For me, it's rancid at 14 days, bro. It is. Like, it's just gnarly. It's too much, yeah. It's too, too much. much, it burns, like, right? It not only, it's ammoniated. That's the word I'm looking for. That ammoniated burn on your palate is yeah. way too strong for me. I'm like, somebody's like, oh, this is 14 days. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> no, no, less, less. And they're like, okay. <laughs> I think I'm like, 
crazy, but I'm, they're like, this is when it's perfect. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Oh, not for me. No, I just like a little bit less. And, and I, think it's, I think it's different ways for you to apply it to like some people, they ferment the tofu and they'll do it with beer um, to kind of mellow it out a little and they spike it with some chili. So like in Vietnam, in South in uh, Southwest Vietnam, they'll do like a, it's called chow. It's like a fermented tofu, but I think they do it for a seven day process with beer and they spike it with a chili. Um, and it comes out a little bit sweeter and then they'll smear it like on duck as a, you don't, you're not eating it. They use it as a marinade. It's like a sauce additive. Well, that's interesting because the beer, you'd have the maltiness, which would give it the sweetness. sweetness. Yep. And then you have the natural sugars in the beer and then the chili. And then I, I love the idea of using it as a marinade. So they'll smear it on duck. The, the favorite way, I don't like eating it straight up, but my, the favorite way that I've cooked with it is uh, my cousins, my, li my little fucking nephews, you know, they'll get the fermented tofu and then they'll smear it on scallops and they'll cook it on open fire. And then that tofu, it changes once it caramelizes. Um, I think the salt dissipates or something happens where it caramelizes, where it turns into a completely different character profile. Um, and it's like this super savory, sort of like, it starts to taste more like miso sort of flavor. Wow. Um, and when you cook it. So that's my favorite way of cooking, having it on, using it as a marinade with duck. And you don't need much because it's so pungent, right? Yeah. Same thing with scallop. Just a little bit on scallop and you, you cook that. You fire roast that shit. You grill it. I wonder, you know what? You know what I'm thinking might be kind of cool? What's up? I think that would be rad blended with chicken liver for bon mi spread. Oh, 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 I'm taking that one. I'm going to borrow that, bro. I'm going to borrow that, man. Right, though? Don't you think? Yeah. Like, I keep thinking Absolutely. about, like, because I love a spicy liver spread. For sure. But the ferment, then you wouldn't need to add your acid to it because it would have the natural fermentation. Yeah. And the tofu would actually give it some lightness. Yeah. Absolutely, man. And then the lactic acid, it, it, it naturally makes like a, a buttery sensation on your palate. You know, yeah. you make, it makes your mouth water, that sort of stuff. So, and you wouldn't, and I think it would really help. Well, because of the fermentation, it would help preserve the liver and hold better. You could do it with, you know, do it with, do it with chicken fat, like that schmaltz and, and just really, oh yeah. And like scallions with that too. And like, oh, oh man. <laughs> Sandwich time. Yeah, <laughs> next pop-up pop chris Cosentino. <laughs> okay so i've taken a lot of your time today and i really appreciate it so we're going to do a game i have a straightforward questions no answers wrong it's a rapid fire okay all right i'm, I'm just here so that i don't get fined by the nfl <laughs> i'm just kidding <laughs> ready to go bench response <laughs> <laughs> all right ready Pasta noodles. Wait, uh, uh, it's whatever comes to mind. Whatever one you want, whichever one you like more, doesn't matter. In Vietnam, there's a, we call pasta nui, and that triggers a memory for me. My mom would pan sear pork chops um, that have been marinating in oyster sauce, and you know what she'd do? She'd take the pork chop out, and there's this beautiful caramelized pan dripping, and she'll fucking throw pasta shells in that, and then. You know, we'll eat that. That was our version of fucking pasta. That's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> dripping pasta, you know, like caramelized, buttery. Okay, sorry. No, just, oh, good. That's awesome. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Iced or hot? Hot. Espresso cappuccino? 
a cappuccino with a shot of espresso. (laughs) (laughs) An extra shot of espresso. (laughs) Chocolate fruit. Chocolate or fruit, you said? Yeah. That's a hard one. Chocolate covered strawberries. (laughs) You're a cheater. That's the first time anyone said that. (laughs) Both, bro. (laughs) Pork or fish. I mean, excuse me, pork or beef. Um, fuck, bro. That's a hard one. Yeah. Fuck. Um, but no answer is wrong. It's just you know, and I think that's the thing because there's definitely preferences. Like, what do you see yourself? Pork. Pork. Okay. Uh, lobster or shrimp? Shrimp. I I, I can't stand lobster. I, I, you want to hear the story real quick? Sure. My father is a fishmonger, and then at the end of every year, they would clean out their freezer at the fish company that he worked at. And in the freezer were always a fuck ton of like year long frozen lobster, which is. I can already see this. Don't even get me started, right? And then there's this Asian thing. There's this like extreme Asian thing where when they don't know how to cook something of their, you know, an ingredient of the origin of where the country is from, my, my, in particular, my dad's from Vietnam, he would overcook the fuck out of the lobster, bro. Like he would steam it for like an hour, you know, like, yeah, bro. So like, I grew up eating like overcooked lobster and it always make my stomach turn. And when I went to culinary school, like 18 years old and cooking lobster for the first time, it blew my mind that you blanched lobster for like a minute or two. You know what I mean? Like, it fucking blew my mind compared to my dad steaming it for an hour. You were like, man, I was like eating my Air Jordans, the soul. <laughs> and, and, and not just that, but, you know, I, I don't know if people know, but when, when you overcook lobster, there's this smell that sort of permeates. And the water eventually turns green. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty gross, bro. Gross. So, so I, for me, I can still eat lobster. I can still cook lobster. It's just not my favorite thing because of those scarred memories. <laughs> it's fucked up, I know. Wow. Wow, that's crazy. All right, so uh, shout out to Pops. I don't mean to put my Pops out there like that, but it's that's just all good. I think he'll get it. He'll totally get it. It's a truth. It's a truth. <laughs> Okay, Dungeness crab, soft shell crab. Dungeness crab, for sure. It's pretty magic, isn't it? Yeah, and it's a local thing. It's something that I think as a Californian we appreciate because we, because um, we could go to like anywhere off the peninsula and like find a fucking Dungeness crab walking around like the size of your fucking palm or arm, right? So yeah, I love sure. Dungeness crab. Yeah, for sure. All right, favorite guilty pleasure. Don't hide that shit, dude. Don't don't be all like, oh, you know, once in a while, I uh, maybe have a. I love, I love, I love shitty ass hot dogs, bro. I love, like the Costco dollar fifty hot dog, and you get a free soda with it. I can't fucking. That's my guilty pleasure, bro. You know what I mean? Like, and like my homies, like that's so fucking disgusting. Like, don't you want like a really good high end? I was like, no, man, it's not shitty enough. It's got to be like soft soft shitty soggy bun <laughs> uh you know a fucking what is it there they're the polish link that's been sitting in a steamer for like two hours or if not oh, all day. <laughs> really. that's well that answers the next one i think i was going to say burger or hot dog 
Hot dog. Straight up, bro. I fucking eat hot dog. What's that? Ketchup or mustard? Mustard. Spicy mustard. Spicy mustard. Yeah. The next one I was going to ask you was Dijon or Delhi. Yeah. Okay. So. Yes. Any words of advice for all those folks out there who are wanting to get into the industry, really wanting to, you know, learn to cook? Is there any advice that you can give to them? Um, if there's any advice at all, I think it's pretty universal. If you want to be excellent at anything, you have to study the fuck out of it. You know, you have to understand it in all its different angles, whatever you're interested in, whether it's plumbing, acting, or drawing, or basketball. You know, I, I'm, I'm a Malcolm Gladwell guy. Ten, uh, outliers, you got to read it. There's a sort of theory around 10,000 hours. It's, uh, it's, it's sort of an explanation and story around um, if you want to be excellent at something, you have to put in 10,000 hours before you are considered excellent or, or a master of your craft. And then he goes into this explanation about not being the best, but being good enough. Once you're good enough in a space, then, and you keep investing your time, everything sort of permeates, um, and, and kind of strive towards, towards, uh, not strive, but, uh, then you can consider yourself an expert in that space and kind of like uh, thrive off, 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 off of those, uh, off of those things that you're interested in. So outliers, read it 10,000 hours and that's in everything that you do. You know, if you want to be a great chef, put in 10,000 hours. You want to be a great news reporter, put in 10,000 hours. <laughs> so, um, all right. So if people want to follow you on Instagram, they should reach you at at chef to David Fu, C H T C H E F T U D A V I D. PHU, we'll spell it out. <laughs> and again, your documentary that you just uh, just did. Yes, it's uh, it's called Bloodline. It's airing on PBS nationally. Um, check your PBS local station to see listing times. Um, if not, just go on YouTube and go to KQED Food or KQED Arts and then look up Bloodline. You should see it. Awesome. Dude, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and excitement and it's great to see you. It's been a while since I've been able to see you during this world that we've been living in. Vibes, my brother. I look forward to sitting down and having a nice bowl of noodles with you very soon. So. Absolutely, man. Let's make it a fun date, bro. <laughs> um, I'll take you to my spot down the street. I got a really fun spot I like to go to in the city. Unless, no, actually, you know what? I want you to take me to spot. I, I'm sure I'm going to find, you know, learn something new from you. So let's do it, bro. Let's do it anytime. All right. Well, we're going to sign off. Thank you very much for joining. Make sure if you like this podcast, you follow to check out Bloodline and uh, subscribe to our podcast. Thank you.